Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let me just read. A new report commissioned by the Canadian Medical Association provides a stark overview of the broader impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on Canadians, from delayed or missed treatments to a significant increase in the incidence of mental health and substance use disorders, the report highlights the dire consequences beyond the immediate loss of life and illness caused by the COVID-19 virus. Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Catherine Smart is the president of the CMA. She joins us on the program. Dr. Smart, good to have you back with us. And the immediate loss of life is not inconsiderate, is it? No, it's certainly not. You know, our study looked at a five-month period from August to December, and we found 4,000 excess deaths just in that five months. So if you project that throughout the pandemic, you know, I think it's really, really stark how many Canadians have lost their lives, not only to COVID, but to the secondary impacts on our system that have led to delays in care and issues with accessing care. And that number could be higher. I mean, if we, if we go beyond this, that four-month period, that number is going to be significantly higher, is it not? Oh, absolutely. That's just the estimate for that period of time. So, you know, for sure, if you were to extrapolate that to the total pandemic, it would be much, much higher. So the news release from the CMA adds this. Over the past 20 months, COVID-19 overwhelmed our health system and the consequences to the broader patient population are now in plain sight. We're facing a significant backlog in procedures and treatments, as well as more acute illness. I heard a number 347,000 surgeries postponed or cancelled. Is, is that correct? In our study, we looked at eight specific uh, surgeries and procedures, and that was the approximate number of backlog for those eight uh, things we looked at directly. So again, you can imagine the total number is actually much higher, because of course, there's many people that are still waiting for surgeries and other diagnostic imaging that we didn't examine. Um, so it, it sort of gives a sense for these eight things where we're at, uh, but we know the numbers are much bigger throughout the entire system, which is, of course, again, very concerning. What's, what's the stress our healthcare system is under now, and if someone were to suspect they may have something significantly wrong with them, were to go to their family physician, and the family physician were to say, yeah, I think you need to be investigated, What's what are the next steps? What would happen if it weren't, hadn't been COVID time, and what's likely to happen now? Yeah, so everything in our system is sort of predicated on this idea of triage, right? So depending on how high the concern is for going on and depending what your diagnosis is, it depends on the urgency which with which you receive care. Um, so, you know, if you, in the example you gave, if you went to your family physician and there was some concerns uh, for a significant diagnosis, then your family doctor would set up the necessary investigations, potentially referrals, depending on what the concern was. And then how quickly you access those things would depend somewhat on the question. You know, so if it was a worry about cancer, obviously that would be faster, um, those types of things. So, that's still the process, but the issue we're running into now is that so many of these things are backlogged and people have had to wait so long that we're struggling with that ability to prioritize people who need things urgently because yeah. the number of those people just keeps climbing. So let's say 
you know, in the past it was three to four weeks for an urgent MRI, just as an example. Well, now that number might be, you know, three to four months because the number of people in that same queue, meaning the same number of people that need that urgently, has just grown because we haven't been able to keep up with it. So we're just really seeing those bottlenecks in the system that's making it challenging for people to get the care that they need. And people are dying because of that. Yes, that's what's clear from this report, and I think that's what's so concerning. And, you know, and I think from our perspective, we in the healthcare system has been struggling for a long time. You know, I think a lot of Canadians had experienced wait times even before the COVID pandemic that were concerning, yeah. uh, that absolutely had impact on quality of life. And we've been sort of struggling in the system to keep up with the demand of an aging population and people with more, more complex and chronic disease for a long time. Um, but now when we add on top of that, this very significant stress on all levels of the system, but particularly the acute care system, which has been overwhelmed by patients utilizing the hospital with COVID, we've had to shift resources from other aspects of hospital-based care to, to care for those patients. Um, and that's, you know, made the backlog and the issues just that much more extreme. But I think the real message is, is We've had a healthcare system that's been neglected for a long time. It's underfunded, it's under-resourced in terms of human health resources, and we just haven't really seen the political will or commitment to solve that issue. And, and now, unfortunately, it's become much more dire. Yeah, and the acute care issue, uh, pre-COVID, and certainly now, even more so, but was a major issue prior to COVID, with 5 million Canadians not even having a family physician. And if I remember correctly, one of your predecessors told me on air but family physicians are retiring faster than the general population, so that situation is not getting better by itself. No, it's not getting by, better by itself. You know, recent data from Kai High showed us the, that the average age of a family doctor in Canada is 51 years old. One in four of our physicians is, is comes to us being trained overseas. Um, so what we're really seeing is that we aren't keeping up with the demand within our own country to produce primary care physicians. Um, and we're not really getting ahead of it. Uh, so it is a huge, huge concern. And that's one of the reasons why the CMA is really pushing on this idea of better integrated human health resource planning so that there is actually a plan, right? Like if you don't know how many doctors you need, how do you make sure your medical school system, your postgraduate training program is actually outputting the right number of healthcare professionals for Canadians? And this isn't only an issue in medicine, it's an issue across the health professions. Uh, and right now we're also facing a really significant crisis in terms of nurses and having enough nurses to staff our hospitals. Um, and this is on the background of a global nursing shortage. So, you know, if we don't kind of get our act together in terms of better planning, we are going to be dealing with this issue for many, many years to come. Yeah, here's another big concern. And uh, with inflation and the supply chain issues and the other issues we talk about on the air, people are aware of, there's the issue of food insecurity, hunger, and to use another word, uh, grew in this country by 39% in the first two months of the pandemic. It's still growing. Yes, absolutely. It's another real concern is, you know, what we would call some of those more structural elements or social determinants, you know, more people experiencing poverty, food insecurity, increasing racism in the system. And of course, all these things have broad and lasting impacts on people's health. We've seen an increase in mental health challenges during the pandemic. And again, I think this is on the background of what was an escalating mental health crisis even prior to COVID, 
We know our system is not well resourced to deal with mental health concerns. You know, we hear from Canadians every day needing to seek support for their mental health outside of what's covered in our basket of quote unquote universal health care. Um, so that's, I think, really worrisome as well. You know, how, where, where are we going to see those resources come from to actually help Canadians address their mental health? You know, we've seen the federal government now add a Minister of Health focused on mental health and wellness. We've heard promises of commitments to of funding for the provinces directly to address those issues. But of course, we haven't actually seen any of that come through yet. Uh, but it's clearly an area that really needs a lot of attention. Gun ownership is a right. And with that right comes great responsibility. Based on the information and evidence I have received, today I am announcing charges against the shooter's parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly. Karen McDonald, the prosecutor at Oakland County in Michigan after the mass high school shooting in that community with four students dead, seven people wounded. 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly has been charged criminally, 24 counts including four counts of first-degree murder. His parents are charged with involuntary manslaughter, were declared fugitives yesterday before being arrested in the basement of a building in Detroit. And according to the prosecutor in court, quote, responsible gun owners have a right to possess a gun, but with it comes responsibility. Mark Barden joins us on the program on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We've spoken with Mr. Barden. Previously, his six-year-old son, Daniel, was shot and killed December 14, 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary School, along with 19 other students and six adults at the school. And um, Mark, thank you for coming back on the program. Uh, I, I so admire what you and your fellow members at Sandy Hook Promise are doing. You're the co-founder and managing director. What's your reaction? What's your response to the continued shootings and particularly now this one in Michigan? How do you react to that? Uh, thanks for having me on, Roy. And uh, yeah, as 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 you mentioned, you know, I, we will continue to grieve the shooting murder of our seven-year-old son Daniel uh, for the rest of our lives. Uh, that that will never go away. And right now, my reaction is is my heart is just broken for these families whose children were ripped away from them so violently, and and for the seven wounded uh, kids as well. And uh, and then the community, the school community, the students, and uh, the staff who are there and are traumatized, and and the larger community. That's that's what I'm thinking about. Roy is is there just how they're going to go on? Because um, I'm I'm on this path myself, and um, nobody deserves this. No, and condolences to you and and all the parents and the families of the children at Sandy Hook. What you're doing though, moving forward with Sandy Hook Promise is such a, a necessary and worthwhile endeavor people need to get behind. So let's talk about a number of the things that we discussed um, last last year when we talked. Um, are, are, do you find the people in the United States, and the effort is in the U.S., but we're paying attention in Canada. Clearly, we've had school shootings here. Is there appropriate or proper response from people in the United States? Are people reacting and saying, yeah, I want to get behind the objectives of Sandy Hook? Uh, yeah, we do have. Um, uh, we really do have a, a very robust base of uh, supporters and volunteers and uh, folks who really uh, believe in the work that we're doing. You know, we we work hard in the, in the policy space around mental health, school safety, and uh, firearm safety, and we also uh, bring our 
uh, know the science programs to, to schools around our country uh, at no cost to the schools. And, I mean, if you're watching the details emerge from this latest uh, horrific tragedy, uh, there are almost always warning signs before something like this happens. And, you know, students who are trained to, to look for and identify those warning si- signs and uh, immediately tell a trusted adult, uh, their parents or a faith leader or a coach, anyone who then takes that information Uh, takes that seriously and acts immediately, Um, this can be preventable. Uh, If folks know those warning signs and uh, take them seriously and and act immediately, and we can can get somebody to the help that they need uh, before it becomes another tragedy. Yeah, and and in in Michigan, it appears that clearly there were warning signs about Ethan Crumbly, which his parents were made aware of, and we'll hear more about that as the as the case goes forward. Now, the, the objective of Sandy Hook Promise is to create a culture engaged in preventing shootings, violence, and other harmful acts in school, including the Know the Signs program, which you just talked about. So once once that is it becomes center and, and students and staff recognize what to look for and how to react to it, there are other objectives that Sandy Hook Promise has, and you can find it on Twitter, at Sandy Hook. Also, website, Mark, what's the website? Uh, SandyHookPromise.org. Dot .org, SandyHookPromise.org. Um, how has the Sandy Hook Promise initiative, a more string, stringent gun ownership legislation, been received in the United States? You, you don't want to take away people's... Uh, constitutional right to own a firearm, but you want people to be responsible, and you're getting a lot of positive reaction from gun owners, gun owners in the United States. How is that being received? Uh, it's it's received well, um, Roy, because our 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 mission is is clear and we are transparent. That uh, we know that there is so much we can do to prevent uh, these tragedies from happening without infringing on anybody's right to own a firearm. And it's all about uh, firearm responsibility and uh, training people, uh, like I said, how to recognize those warning signs, which are almost always present, um, you know, safe storage. And, um, you know, we need to close the loophole in the background check system because that is exploited by, by criminals and people who should not have them. So there is so much work that we can do uh, that, uh, again, won't, won't infringe on anyone's right to, to keep and own a, a firearm. Uh, and we can certainly have a, a huge impact on this uh, this epidemic of shootings we have here in, in the United States. And I think it's appropriate for the for the prosecutor to say that there is responsibility quotient with owning a firearm. Uh, the decision about the involuntary manslaughter charge would be dealt with in court. But but I don't have an issue with that because the Crumbly, this 15-year-old, was showing signs of, of being of, of being very troubled and it should have been responded to. And and what what the what the prosecutor is doing may in fact force that at least in Michigan may follow for some follow up action. Uh, first of all, Mark, do you agree with that? And then, what additional areas of focus are there for Sandy Hook Promise? Uh, well, I do agree with that, and and, and just kind of what you uh, just outlined is pretty critical and core to our our work. Uh, it's it's training folks to to recognize those warning signs uh, and and tell a trusted adult. The student sees something in social media, where those students are the eyes and and the ears, Uh, they're seeing things that their parents and their teachers are not seeing. Uh, So we train them to recognize those warning signs and, uh, you know, take it seriously and and act immediately and tell a trusted adult who can then take those next steps. Or they can use our anonymous reporting system and uh, connect with a uh, trained crisis counselor uh, live uh, 24 hours a day who can uh, help them get this person connected to whatever help or support or services they need uh, before it becomes uh, something more serious or tragic. 
And Sandy Hook Promise has been successful in making legislative changes, or at least driving legislative change in the United States. So that is really significantly important. Dr. St. John, I always appreciate speaking with you. Thank you for coming on the program. And would you start with this, please? What is the role of public health at a time like this? Uh, good question. Uh, very good question. First of all, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I've always felt that, that uh, public health, which really deals with populations rather than individual patients, as opposed to critical health, uh, has always always has a political component because sometimes, often, often the public health measures that are required to deal with um, infectious disease outbreaks do have impacts beyond just health. Uh, I, I, I recall during the SARS 2003, uh, when we were in the midst of the outbreak in Toronto, uh, as an example, Chinese restaurants emptied because people thought that uh, you could catch uh, coronavirus, COVID-1, in a Chinese restaurant. Uh, well, that, we, we really didn't anticipate, to be honest, that particular impact. Of, uh, of COVID, uh, it took it took our prime minister having lunch in a Chinese restaurant to sort of calm down that whole issue. So there's always a, a, a political dimension to public health. Okay, so we have public health at the municipal level, at the provincial level, at the federal level, and at the international level with the World Health Organization, where you uh, were the director for the Americas. Question for you here is this: the World Health Organization warns that Omicron variant could pose a very high risk of infection surges, and that may result in, quote, severe consequences, end quote. How does the World Health, Health Organization arrive at such warnings when much remains unknown about the potential of the variant to spread quickly and how serious in, its infections are? Are they not ringing the alarm bell potentially louder at the same time they're trying to ring it less loud? Well, I think the World Health Organization has has to take a very broad uh, view of things and look at the whole picture. And when they look at the whole picture, they see many, many countries that have not had access to vaccine and have huge proportions of their population unvaccinated and therefore extremely vulnerable to this rapid spread of, uh, of a coronavirus, especially one that looks like, like Omicron, Omicron will be. Um, so they they have to... They, they have to take a broad uh, picture. And I think when they look at that picture and they see this, these big disparities, they, they, uh, it's logical to conclude that the, the new variant uh, could cause significant harm uh, across the world, but not equally across the world, because the well-off nations are going to do better than the poor nations. Um, but they may, they're, they're trying to draw attention uh, to a disparity here. So, the question then becomes how the global community responds. We, re we experienced an H1N1 pandemic in 2009, SARS six years earlier. You were the Canadian manager of the SARS uh, effort. I don't recall the same kind of reaction and life management by governments and health agencies during either of those situations. And I've been told that we really dodged a bullet in 2009 with H1N1. We did, uh, well, we did. There were both with H1N1 and with COVID-1, we dodged a bullet because these viruses were not 
uh, as as highly transmissible as the current one we're dealing with. Two really different situations. Uh, COVID-1 in Canada was predominantly in Toronto, and it was predominantly hospital-based transmission, uh, as opposed to what we call community-based transmission. In other words, with COVID-2, because COVID-2 is spread out into the community. So it is much broader in terms of its impact than, say, COVID-1 was. So two different, two different uh, viruses, two different behaviors, uh, and and uh, and that leads to uh, quite a quite a bit of disparate differences in the way we have to deal with it. You mentioned politics plays a role in public health, and I understand that globally, nationally, probably at the lower levels as well. But does politics get to the point? Does the influence of the political spectrum start to interfere? with public health doing its job and advising people on the appropriate action to take and then start to compromise the very the very mission of public health. Does politics just play an interference role far far greater than it than it ever should? Well I'm I'm not sure I'd call it an inter- interference role as more as I would call it two really distinct and different points of view. Public health is going to focus almost exclusively on the health dimensions of the problem. Uh, and so the recommendations that they will come forward with, based on science for controlling a particular virus like COVID-2, are going to be focused on how do we stop transmission, mm-hmm. how do we keep people healthy, how do we prevent death, and so forth. That's the focus. On the political side, uh, there's another focus that is based on our, our well-being economically as a whole. And how do we keep our economy in good enough shape so that people are not on the street, so that people are not standing in soup kitchens, so that we don't have major depressions and, and, and recessions and so forth? That's another, uh, that's another point of view. And, and they, come, they, they do clash in a way. Uh, I mean, we've had uh, in Ontario, we've had several waves of, of uh, COVID-2. And I'm, I'm always impressed with the second wave, how rapidly the cases came down when we had a full implementation of not only vaccination but public health measures. And then they kind of try to sort of bottom, bottom out, not at zero, but at a low level. And then the other interests come into play and say, well, look at the damage that's being done to our economy. We have to loosen up. That means reduce the public health measures. And sure enough, we get another wave. So it's a balance that goes back and forth between two interests that are that basically the interest of the public is at heart, but they are two different approaches and two different areas of focus. Yeah, we were told that two vaccines would deliver protection and life would continue. Um, and most people move forward with that, and I'm sure that that was, the, that was the belief. But now here we are with the variants and the boosters, and questions start to be asked, and this public resentment starts to build, as you're aware, Dr. St. John, toward restrictions, and they can lead to street protests, what we've seen in in Europe. So governments and public health agencies face difficulty if there's widespread public rejection of mandates or even recommendations. Public health can't do its job if people don't agree, right? Uh, Absolutely. It's it's an axiom, uh, Roy, that that, that, uh, in a a health emergency, an an epidemic, an outbreak, the people that are going to manage that outbreak and try to contain it they have one thing that they do not wish to lose. It's, it's high stakes. They cannot lose the trust of the public. Yeah. The public must understand 
uh, must be uh, must, you must we must explain to the public so they understand very carefully why we wish to do what we do. Um, you lose the trust of the public, uh, and the public is not going to be willingly following what you would like them to do. And we're seeing that. So, yes, and I think I, I would be. I, 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 it's my opinion that when the vaccine became available, uh, there was a lot of. Uh, hype and overpromising of what this vaccine might do when we really didn't know what it might do in the long run. Uh, how long would the immunity last? Would the immunity be strong against multiple strains of coronavirus? Questions we did not know, but it was it was viewed as get get a vaccine and everything will be fine. We right. go back to normal. So I, I, that's unfortunate when things are overstated uh, and and uh, and people are not advised to be cautious. So, yes, those things happen, uh, and I think we, we, we've been working ever since, I think, to regain some of that trust to the public. Dr. St. John, as you see what, uh, what's developing now and what has developed over the last year and a half, how do you assess the role, the job that public health has done, and if you were still in the positions that you were in with all three agencies, how would you address going forward? How would you communicate with people, and what recommendations do you think you might be inclined to make? Well, uh, Is that a fair question? Yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's also a truism in, in public health in dealing with an infectious disease, disease outbreak or epidemic that the first, the first um, start of an epidemic is, is going to be uh, people with symptoms. Now, symptoms of um, runny nose and headache and whatnot can mean many different kinds of agents. So the next question is, well, what's causing it? And uh, then the question after that is, how widespread is it? And the question after that is, what kind of impact is that going to have in terms of mortality and hospital care and so forth? Well, you don't get answers to all that in the first few days after you've been told, first few days or weeks after you've been told, that there's an outbreak of, of, uh, of a transmissible disease. That is called the period of uncertainty. Uh, you don't know exactly what all the information is. You don't have all the information you'd like to have. And in that period of time, you can't just sit and wait. You still have to make some assumptions and take some action. The action might not be perfect at the time, uh, and you might have to dial it back uh, as you learn more. But the, the point is it's easier to overreact. It's better, I should say, to overreact rather than underreact because you can always dial it back. That's a difficult thing to explain to people who are we're, we're so used to now having instant answers. I mean, you, you Google something and you get an instant answer. Yeah. And science doesn't quite work that way. It takes a while to sort out these questions that, that, that give us a strategy on how to contain an infectious disease outbreak. So that, that's, that's really a difficult thing. And um, what, what we have to do is we have to be sure that our messaging is not overstated or understated. I believe the public will accept uh, messages that say things are difficult, uh, things might be difficult for a while, telling people that we really, really don't know for certain how this is going to shape up, but we have to, we have to tell them uh, what we know at the time that we know it, and be straightforward with them. Yeah, that is so. And consistency of messaging is really, really significantly important. 
Uh, if anybody were to say lockdown again, I think there would be tremendous pushback. We're seeing it in Europe. There will probably be pushback, significant pushback in this country, and politicians recognize that, and public health recognizes that. So if I can just put that on the, in, in the corner of the, of, of the question here and ask you this, are COVID mutations going to become stronger? What's your sense? And more resistant, or will mutating when combined with a more vaccinated population result in a weakening of the threat COVID poses to national health? I'd like to hear that messaging come, coming from public health. Well, I think I think that one 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 thing is for sure is viruses mutate, uh, and they will change. And this virus is not going to be any different. Uh, what what's different between viruses is the rate at which they mutate. The influenza virus, for example, mutates every year, uh, and we have to have a vaccine tailored. For that that particular virus every single year uh this virus uh we we still again to be honest don't know what how fast this virus will mutate and the current uh omicron virus is a bit of a surprise um and so you can say yes we will have mutations and we will have new strains of this coronavirus for some time to come how long no one can tell you no one can tell you so um that's an honest, straightforward message. Uh, will it get uh, worse in terms of its health impact? Um, viruses tend not to do that. They tend, now this is not intentional, viruses don't do things by intention, but they tend to, uh, the mutations tend to favor spreading of the virus and not um, uh, the virus uh, decimating its part the, the people they infect. So, uh, yeah, we're going, to have the, we're going to have this virus for a while. And uh, or variations of it, and our vaccine may have to be tailored, just as we do for the flu vaccine, and we may have to have annual annual um, uh, vaccinations. Again, these are maybe questions, and uh, we just need the time to to sort this out. So, pretty fluid playing field. At the moment, in the minute we have left, Doctor St. John, how does this current pandemic, this current health threat? compared to anything that you experienced over the years that you were involved with PHAC, the CDC, and the WHO? No, this is, um, this is a little bit reminiscent of um, the most recent thing in memory is, is the Zika virus outbreak. But the Zika virus was, was spread um, in Brazil, I mean, uh, where millions of people got infected. But it was uh, spread by a mosquito, so it was limited to the tropical and semi-tropical zones where the mosquito... Can, can live. The mosquitoes don't live in our winter here. Uh, they come out in the spring. So um, it was not as a, not a global pandemic, but it was a serious uh, outbreak uh, okay. in countries throughout Central America and Latin America. David Redmond is back with us on the program. David, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Before we, we go back to where we were, where we've talked about in the past and how we've gotten to where we are now, let me just ask you this question out of the box. Is the government's and the health agency's response to Omicron better than it was to the original COVID-19 virus? No, it's exactly the same. They are trying to do, uh, using non-pharmaceutical interventions, the same mistakes that they have made in each and every one of the waves with each and one, every one of the variants. And none of this was advised according to the protocols that were in place. So let's talk about the issues you have raised and the challenges you've delivered to governments and health agencies. You've talked about this on this program, but I'll ask you to do it again. 
The first was that influenza pandemic emergency protocols were in place and ignored. You were the head of EMA when the pandemic plan was being updated and redrafted in 2005. That happened again in 2014, and it has to be done every 10 years. So there are four goals, as I understand it, of this particular plan. Would you remind us, please, what those four goals and how many of those four goals were eventually followed by the governments of this country, provincial and federal? Absolutely. Well, the first goal was to try and minimize the impact of the virus itself on the citizens of the province. The second goal was to ensure the minimum societal impact of everything that you were about to do on the province. The third goal was to ensure that that you maintained your economy to the highest level possible throughout the entire pandemic. And the last goal was to ensure that all critical resources were used in an effective and efficient manner. In my opinion, we failed at four out of four of the goals. And if I can just start with the first one, to minimize the impact on the citizens of your province, we know and we knew every year, every uh, four years, updated was the World Health Organization's document on non-pharmaceutical interventions that we now call lockdowns. But there's 15 NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Most of them are strongly recommended against because they do not stop transmission of the virus, but they come with severe collateral damage. We never looked after those who were most at risk. We ranked last in the world's economic developed countries in protection of our seniors, wave after wave after wave. So we failed at the first goal, which was to protect those most at risk. People under the age of 60, we know for a fact, are at same or less risk from COVID than they are from seasonal influenza and yet we continue to act like everyone is at equal risk. By closing our economy, by closing our schools, we have enforced on our citizens mental health issues and societal health issues that will last for at least the next 60 years until the children who are in our schools now are dead. Now these plans, that's quite a statement you just made. Uh, These plans, these four pillars, they were devised. They were um, created very pragmatically by people who did it in the cold gray dawn of the morning after, if you will, after previous uh, public health challenges. Tell us, please, what went into creating these four pillars that governments ignored. And you told me the first time we talked that what governments did was they took what the emergency management agency had put together and which had been approved as the appropriate and pragmatic response to a pandemic, and they threw them out out of the window in favor of, uh, did you say emotional response or or just a political response at the time? Well, uh, I'll answer that part of the question first. I believe it was a fear-based response. And what they saw was what happened in China, which was a theater of the macabre, but then they saw what happened in Italy in a a country that didn't know how to respond to this kind of a pandemic, and they became very afraid. So the knee-jerk reaction was fear. What did they do with the plans they had written? Those plans, as you point out, had been written and rewritten constantly based on all the hard lessons learned, pandemic by pandemic. There's been five in my lifetime, you're in my lifetimes. There's going to be five more 
in the next uh, 50 years. We need to have a response which we can sustain. And those plans were built to ensure the minimum impact province by province. Instead, what we tried to do was to have the minimum impact on our healthcare systems, two completely different aims. And in so doing, we have caused massive backups in our surgical wait times. We've caused massive destruction of our children's education. The mental health aspects we're seeing every day transmitted in our paper. So by throwing away the hard lessons learned in those pre-written plans that should have been brought out, adjusted for COVID-19, the actual virus, which we knew was extremely age-dependent, and followed them. Instead, we ignored them, and province by province, we reacted solely on fear and went to the root of lockdowns, which is using almost all 15 out of 15 non-pharmaceutical interventions that we knew we should never use for a pandemic of this type. And to repeat, you say none of the four pillars of the, of the, uh, the platform, the programs, were adopted by government, none of them. Zero. Not one out of the four, and we see the, the impact to our society. We now have uh, have massive societal uh, impacts. You know, the increase in child abuse, the increase in in spousal abuse, yeah. but even worse, the ability of other provinces and other communities helping each other. Mutual aid is a pillar of emergency management. We've stopped doing it. It seems to be every province for themselves and each one trying to outdo the other in the severity of their lockdowns and denial of charter rights and freedom. So, so David, just before the break, you, you talked about what governments, in fact, did, what they implemented and what the cost has been. So let me ask you this then. Where would we be today? How much better off would we be today had, in fact, as a society, as a country, economically and otherwise, how much better would we have been or would we be today if, in fact, the plans that were in place and approved and updated had been put to use? Well, I put it to you that the collateral damages caused by lockdowns, and that's mental health, societal health, damage to our children's education, severe impact on people who have other severe diseases like diabetes, cancer, heart disease, and the massive impact to our economy wouldn't have happened those collateral damages were totally avoidable. The number of deaths, if we had followed the plans, we would have immediately moved to protect our seniors, and we probably would have seen a significant reduction in the deaths from COVID. 73% of the deaths in Canada happened in our long-term care homes, and we did nothing to protect them. So where would we be? I think we would look an awful lot like Sweden, except for the deaths in the seniors' homes. Sweden didn't wear masks, didn't force any business to close, didn't close their schools, and has seen the best outcomes in their economy and has seen the least impact for mental health and societal health. They, they basically are at the point now where the pandemic is over and they are seeing extremely low rates of transmission and of deaths from COVID. And as far as the people of Sweden are concerned, the pandemic lasted perhaps the first wave. Now, yes, they had deaths in their seniors' homes, but in fact, Sweden has done lower in deaths per capita than almost all the major countries in Europe and better than all of the countries in Europe that use severe lockdowns. So we would look like Sweden. We'd also look like Florida. So uh, there have been, uh, there were, were in Sweden, there were complaints about the prime minister and their national uh, medical, chief medical doctor, 
I don't know if they've been completely resolved, but there were concerns that had been expressed. Uh, but Sweden has always been the model of how you've, you've told us the model of how things should have been done. Let's come back to this country. I'm going to be speaking with the president of the Canadian Medical Association later on the program today. A study that the CMA uh, conducted shows delayed or missed health care services may have caused or contributed to 4,000 Canadians dying in just four months last year from non-COVID-related health conditions. And that, I think, is just the tip of the iceberg. I totally agree. And that is just one of the five collateral damages we've caused. There's been very good uh, cost-benefit analysis done that were, in fact, done way back in April of 2020 that showed that at least 10 times more deaths will occur because of our lockdown response to COVID than COVID the virus ever could have done. And so what we're seeing now is just the tip of that iceberg coming out. The one you've mentioned is one of my five that I always talk about, which is collateral damage to other severe illness and disease. But the one I really want to drill on for people is children. Kids that are between five and grades one to 12, the damage we've done to their education, there are also massive studies that show one year loss of education is equal to three to five years shorter lifespan and a five to 15% reduction in the ability of that individual to earn a solid income in their future. That's why I say for the next 60 years, because those children that are in school, this lockdown response to this pandemic will dramatically impact those children unless we, for the rest of their lives, unless we do something in a recovery plan to address that loss of education, but more importantly, that loss in socialization for three years now in our school system. I've certainly heard the parents on this program talk about how their children have suffered with, uh, with all of the restrictions they faced and continue, in, in many cases, to be afraid of. Now, do you think, if we go back, if we were to go back to, um, say, March of 2020, do you believe Canadians, given all the international news about the pandemic, would have been of a mind to pursue the four pillars that you and, and the Emergency Management Agency put in place? Absolutely. And the way that should have been done is the way Dr. Tegnell did it. Sorry to go back to Sweden. But that's what a premier's job is. Every premier should have done the cost-benefit analysis with their emergency management agency. Sorry to interrupt and you, but there were no cost-benefit analysis done, right? There was none done. The medical officers of health, in my opinion, immediately switched to protecting the medical system and ignored everything that was in those plans, which required a cross-all-sectors-of-the-economy cost-benefit analysis to be done. Clearly, they were never done. If they had been, then the premier would have been able to say every night, instead of a medical officer of health using modeling to scare people to death and trying to inflate the potential damage of COVID, which we know was directed strictly at our seniors, would have been able to say night after night, you know this disease is not deadly if you're under the age of 60 and don't have comorbidities. Okay, one question for you. We only have a minute and a half left. Sorry to interrupt you, Dave. The issue of mandates... Uh, vaccine mandates. We have more than 100 uh, police officers in Toronto who are forced to go on unpaid leave because they're not vaccinated. What's your sense of, uh, of, of these vaccine mandates? As far as I'm concerned, vaccine mandates are illegal and unethical. You never base the response to a pandemic 
on access to a vaccine, number one. The reason is they take three to five years to develop in a safe and and responsive manner, i.e. to know the vaccine will do what it's supposed to do. Here in Alberta, just today, we crested 50% of the people who are currently newly infected with COVID are fully vaccinated. That's double and in some cases triple vaccinated, but we knew that was coming. Israel, nine months ago, told us that 90% of the people in their hospitals were triple vaccinated. These vaccines diminish over time, but regardless of whether they work or not, you never base a response on a vaccine, and using vaccine mandates, in my opinion, is both illegal and unethical because they don't work. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.